There was not a lot of good news in first century Palestine. Things were rough. Most of the Roman Empire, 90% of the Roman Empire, was agrarian. And there were people getting wealthy, but they were the landowners. And they were getting wealthy at the expense of people working the farms. Everyone fancied themselves as a, as a farmer, but no one really wanted to get their hands dirty. So they used cheap labor to do this. And um, these workers did not function in good living conditions. They were living, most of them, from day to day, just a step, one step away from disaster. These, these mostly day laborers, or they may have been a slave, they may have been a free person, but with no money. Uh, these people had no security, living hand to mouth. Uh, they were just one step away, one illness away from disaster, one injury away from disaster. Because if they didn't work, they didn't eat. They, uh, if if the, the landowner withheld a day's wages, they may, their family may not eat that night. And many of them lived just a hair's breadth away from starvation. And in Palestine especially, on top of those poor living conditions, then there was also the temple tax. So there was this tax charged to you to go make yourself right with God, to go and worship like you were supposed to. And uh, most historians say that it was easily, easily 40% of these meager wages was taken away from the common person just to worship and and uh, and pay their taxes to Rome, this is not a good situation. And this is the situation Jesus was born into. This is the situation that his half-brother James was born into. Uh, uh, Jesus himself was a carpenter, uh, uh, and they lived in Nazareth. You know, they didn't live in an urban area. They would have rubbed shoulders with this situation time and time again. And Jesus, observing these conditions for 30 years, I don't think it's an accident the way he started his ministry, his public ministry. It makes sense that he would choose this scripture in that synagogue. We, we see the scene in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He went to preach the sermon for that day. And in, it says, in, starting in verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus goes back. He's called his disciples. He goes back to his hometown synagogue. He's preaching this sermon. And as I was studying this, I just wonder if a younger James was sitting in there listening. I wonder what he must have thought in those moments. 
Because we've, we've talked about in weeks before that Jesus' own family came back a number of times going, Jesus, can you cool it with the Messiah stuff? Jesus, things are getting a little bit hot right now. But hearing that must have been crazy to him saying, hearing Jesus say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then flashing forward years, decades, I wonder if this moment was in the back of James' mind as he wrote these first verses in chapter 5. And it's a warning uh, to the rich landowners that were exploiting people all over the Roman Empire. And James writes, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Whoa, we just jumped right into it. (laughs) James isn't really beating around the bush here. Listen, you rich people. He's referring to the system of gaining wealth, hoarding luxury at the expense of other people, exploitation. And then this is the, the air that James would have breathed. This was the culture of assuming that anyone who's rich is getting rich and is staying rich at the expense of other people. And he's using more Jewish temple language here, weep and wail. And this weep has the connotation of responding to a disaster in the right way. Like, okay, we've got enough stuff right now and we're we're sitting high on the hog. But James is saying, hey, wait a minute. You need to weep and wail because this misery is coming on you. And wail means to howl from like the deepest depths of, of, of their being. This misery is coming on them because they didn't help the poor with their wealth. And even more than that, their desire for comfort and wealth and luxury was actually causing other people to suffer. This is a a very stern warning. So stick with me here in just a second because you may be thinking, I'm not a wealthy landowner. Hold on a second here. Because uh, as James continues, he gives this directory of pointlessness to the mere accumulation of earthly things. He continues in verse two. He says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. I would just rephrase this as riches are worthless when it comes to eternal salvation. And James here is is just ticking the box when it comes to the first century mindset of what it means to be wealthy. You got clothes and gold and silver and he's really doing something that's lost on us uh, English speakers. He's using this tense that's saying, even though these people have all these amazing things, James is saying they're already corroded. All those nice sweaters in the closet, they're already eaten up. All of your silver and gold, it's already corroded. And it's, it's eating at you. It has eaten. That's gone. They are corroded. And Also, this is a culture, he's writing to a culture where most of the people only had the clothes that were on their back. But these people he's writing to had clothes for days, clothes for days. Uh, The words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, also echo James's, James's heart here. 
Jesus says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Already here, <laughs> in just these first few verses, James has given, we've covered a lot of ground. In these first few verses, he's given us four reasons for these wealthy landowners to weep. Number one, their wealth is temporary and it's more fragile than they think it is. Number two is they're guilty of hurting other people. Then they will be judged and condemned for their selfish use of their resources and they've been hoarding all of the stuff as if this world will go on forever. And so he continues in verse 4. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. These are heavy words. Happy Sunday, everybody. But this is saying God takes it personally when you treat others like garbage. God takes it personally when we treat other people as if they don't deserve our attention. God takes it personally when we ignore people even when they're suffering. And God hears those who are suffering. This echoes all the way back to Genesis 4.10 when Cain killed his brother Abel. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Like this is a big deal to God. When, when we don't take whatever God has given us and, and allow it to flow through us to help others. There's a, a loud voice in my head and in our, in our church network, uh, and it has been for decades. His name's Ronald J. Sider. And he wrote this book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, a Biblical Study. And in this book, he sets up the scene where Upton Sinclair read James chapter 5, verse 1 and 6 to a group of pastors, a group of ministers. We're all in there. And he, he read this, but then he deliberately attributed this to the wrong person, not to James, the brother of Jesus, but to an anarchist agitator named Emma Goldman. And as soon as he read this and said that she, she, she wrote that, the people went nuts. They were furious. They're saying, deport her, get out of the country. She's, she's no good, that's, that's too radical. And Sider's take on that scene is that most Christians in the Northern Hemisphere do not believe Jesus' teachings about the deadly danger of possessions. We all know that Jesus warned that possessions are highly dangerous. So dangerous, in fact, that it is extremely difficult for a rich person to be a Christian at all. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, verses 24 and 25. But Sider continues, but we do not believe Jesus. Christians in the United States live in the richest society in the history of the world, surrounded by a billion hungry neighbors. Yet we insist on it more and more. 
If Jesus was so un-American that he considers riches dangerous, then we must ignore or reinterpret his message. I mean, this concept isn't new of being blessed to be a blessing. It's one of the main threads that goes throughout the Bible. It's in Leviticus chapter 19, 13. It's in Deuteronomy. It's in Proverbs. It's in Jeremiah. It's in Malachi, almost all the prophets. It's a massive theme woven throughout Scripture. But I mentioned it before, you may be sitting there going, "Um, Mike, I'm not exploiting anybody. I'm not a wealthy landowner getting rich on the backs of other people. I totally get that. And, And James is talking to very specific people, and it would be irresponsible for us to assume that James is talking directly to us in 2021 in a completely different context. But from what James said to these people, we can, we can glean a lot that challenges our way of life and also challenges the lie that our culture whispers in our ear through this consumerist, uh, gluttonous, luxury, pleasure-driven culture. There's a lie that, that if we're not careful, we can swallow that says, God really won't take care of you. Or maybe it's a a flip, it's a question. Will God really take care of you? Is there enough for you? I think you have to do it on your own. Or the lie that says, if I just get such and such, if I just make this much more money, or if I just had that, I would be healthy. That lie keeps us from cultivating a life of gratitude. That lie keeps us from being present to all that God is doing in the present because we just want something else we don't we don't like that in in our culture and almost everything in our day-to-day life message-wise that we receive is set up to help us believe that that we can just get one or two more situations in our life a little bit more money here this gadget here and then then we can put things in cruise control. We can set autopilot and then we'll have no more problems in life, right? Uh, simple living isn't, it doesn't really sell. Having uh, a life of simplicity uh, that leads to a meaningful life. I mean, how do you market that? It's, it's, it's tough marketing. Um, and uh, if we take a, an honest look at our life, the, the hustle and grind for more and more, whatever more and more is, more and more pleasures, more and more luxury. Uh, if we were to believe all that, all that we take in through, through advertisements, it doesn't lead to a meaningful life. There's a, there's a, a point where um, once we have all of our basic needs taken care of and, and some security, no matter how much more we get, it doesn't really add more to our happiness. And so many people we see, whether they win the lottery or, or get rich or whatever, people have testified over and over again that the more they have, it didn't increase their happiness. But what did increase their happiness was finding something meaningful to their life, something to give their life to. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we know that, that the only way to the good life is, is through Jesus Christ and following his ways. Jesus said, I've come to give life and life more abundantly. So uh, though we may not be rich landowners uh, or, or all the way on the other end of the spectrum, people being exploited, there is good news for us. 
And I think James challenges us to take a look at how we're spending whatever it is God is, has given to us. And yes, that includes resources, but also I want us to think about our time. I want us to think about our energy, our talents that we have, the, the gifts that God has given us. And, and think about the difference between saving and good stewardship, or saving and, and hoarding. Because saving is good stewardship, but hoarding, just keeping everything to yourself, that fosters independence from God, not just good stewardship. A, a mentality of simplicity and saving, that leads us to an others-focused kind of a life, an others-focused mentality. But hoarding, that promotes a sense of superiority over others. That's, that's where that slope leads to. But saving, I love this part, saving, it assumes God uses people to help other people. Think about that for a second. That these, these folks that James was warning, God actually wanted to use them to accomplish and, and to further God's own mission in the earth. Saving assumes that we get to be a part of what God is doing. But hoarding, on the other hand, that assumes that any gain somebody makes is just for number one. Look out for yourself first and foremost. Uh, saving, it helps us prepare for tomorrow. But hoarding, it just indulges today and right now. Saving promotes wise spending on purpose. This, is, that, this one hurts me. <laughs> saving promotes wise spending, but hoarding promotes impulsive spending, reactionary living. Oh, I just need a little hit. I need to, that little hit I get from buying something. Like that's Watch that impulse in our heart. So it, also, I'm going to ask you here in a, a couple of seconds some questions that are just for you. Like this here is, is for self-reflection, not to use as a two-by-four to hit somebody else. Not not to think, ooh, I need to forward this to so-and-so because they've really missed the point on this one. My friend, this is just for you. <laughs> this is just for me. This isn't for us to judge other people. So I want to ask you, and I think James, if he was sitting here with us right now, he would say, are you saving or are you hoarding? I think underneath there's a more important question too. What are you counting on to save you? Where are you putting your faith? Because the good news in this passage is that you don't have to save yourself. <laughs> There's something bigger than you, a God that wants to save you. The good news is that, that right now your voice is heard in heaven. I love that, that, that the, the cries of the people had reached God's ears. And no matter where you are on that spectrum, whether you're oppressed or whether you're the oppressor, God wants to use you. God hears you and God wants to use you uh, to, to help other people and to rebuild and redeem and restore this planet. God wants to use your resources to help others. God wants to use your choices because they matter. That's really good news. And these choices, these resources, these talents you have, they matter here on earth right now. And guess what? They matter in heaven. They matter to God. So what do we do with this? 
that on, on first glance is written to these people that lived 2,000 years ago from a completely different culture in such a different time, the challenge is for us to take a good look at what God's given us. Because no matter how little you have or how much you have, God can use you to help others. I think one of the most overlooked ways we can give to others is by giving them our presence, our attention. There's a lot of people right now struggling with anxiety, struggling with broken relationships, struggling with what to do and all of the the, the toxic culture, um, relationships have been broken, decisions to be made, a lot of uncertainty when it comes to the future. Sometimes we can severely underestimate just the value of a phone call or going to coffee with somebody or writing somebody an old school handwritten note just saying, I'm here for you. I, I, know, uh, I know you're going through a tough time. Uh, I'll lend you my ears. Um, that is massive, a massive way. And how dare we hold that back from people? Because you may think, oh, I don't have money to give away or I don't have you know, all these things that I can, all these earthly possessions. That's, that's totally fine. But the challenge for us here is to take a look at whatever God has given us and say, God, how can you use me? What can you give someone this week? I want you to take some time, get out a piece of paper or a note on your phone and think about, okay, this week, how can I help somebody? Maybe it is calling them. Maybe it's making a charitable donation or maybe it's donating your talents to help somebody. Uh, and, and make a list. What can I do this week? And write down a, a day and a time. What can I do this month to help somebody? And then a third category, what can I do this year? to help somebody with, with what God has given me. Because this life, this life isn't about being a self-made person. You know, the end of the road, if you got everything you wanted material-wise, comfort-wise, luxury-wise, the end of that road, if you do it by yourself and just for yourself, James says it leads to destruction. But when we discover that this life is about being close to the person who made you, to the being who made you, the God of the universe wants you to be in complete loving harmony and perfect union. And when we realize that's the goal and not acquiring, wow, it unlocks a purpose and a meaning for life and it frees us from the prison that this culture tries to put us in and opens up our thinking in ways that, that we couldn't even imagine. So let me, let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to hear the truth about what this life is all about. Dear Jesus, um, would you please open our eyes to all the blessings around us and open our eyes to the people that you have put in our life that we can that we can help and God please make us receptive to all the ways that you are trying to give us help may it comfort us that our cries are actually reaching your ears so dear Heavenly Father we ask you to, to search our hearts right now in this moment and lift our eyes and open up our perspective so we can can live this life on mission with you in Jesus' mighty and powerful name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us for a few moments this week. Uh, as, a, as a reminder, you can always reach out to us at sgbic.com. We love hearing your prayer requests and your comments and your questions and interacting with you. So please don't be shy about reaching out. And before we dismiss, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine down upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen. We love you. We'll see you soon.